This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And hi, everybody. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Today, we are so incredibly honored to have Dr. Eleanor Glass uh, with us. Uh, Dr. Glass, would you tell us where do you work at and, and what is your role? Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yes, I am Eleanor Glass. I'm a family medicine doctor here in Cincinnati, Ohio. And so I work in primary care and my main job where I am today is um, at my independent practice, which myself and my partner, Dr. Amy Meckley, started in July of uh, 2017 here in Cincinnati. And then my second job is I'm a faculty member in the Department of Family and Community Medicine in the University of Cincinnati Department of Family and Community Medicine, where I teach um, process improvement, uh, particularly focused on electronic medical record usage. And then my third job is that I work in an emergency room at the Cincinnati VA hospital, and I see veterans uh, in that hospital one day a week as well. Yeah, that, well, that, that's great, uh, Dr. Glass. Is, is it okay if, if we call you Eleanor? Yes, please. <laughs> okay. Well, well, thank you, Eleanor. And we, once again, we appreciate you being on the, on the podcast and in in preparing for this, I, I looked at your your practice website, uh, Integrated Family Care, and you know I was fascinated by the uh, the type of practice that you that you have. And and tell us a little bit about how your practice is is different or unique compared to traditional traditional primary care. That's a great question because we like to say that it is unique in just about every way compared to primary care. I think if you ask a lot of doctors, um, what would a pre what would your ideal medical practice look like? That became kind of a catchphrase about 10, 15 years ago, the ideal medical practice. Um, a lot of us kind of roll our eyes and say, oh my gosh, what I wouldn't do differently. And so we really took that attitude to the floor and said, how, how can we make every portion of this intentional to improve our patient's health? and to improve the patient experience. Um, we really came to this practice from a hospital system and a, a culture, you know, even nationwide or worldwide where a lot of primary care doctors are experiencing a lot of burnout. And, um, and we really wanted to, um, to, to harness the energy of, of the primary care doctor and the broad training of the family medicine doctor in a practice that allowed us to, to um, put that effort towards the care of our patients. So we are something called a direct primary care practice. That means that um, direct primary care, it's a financial model that, uh, that has our patients paying us directly rather through an insurance company. We keep our costs very low. We're much lower than what you might call a typical concierge practice. Uh, and we do that by reducing overhead. So first of all, we reduce overhead by not billing insurance. So most primary care practices um, have about 40 to 50% of their healthcare dollars going towards just that relationship with insurance companies. So we've eliminated that. And um, we are two doctors working out of a thousand square feet. And we have um, one full-time FTE manager and one full-time FTE RN. And that's it for two, for full practice for two positions. So with that lower overhead, we can keep costs low for patients. And that allows us to be accessible to a broad range of patients. So we primarily serve patients who are either underinsured, that means maybe they have a Christian health sharing ministry, maybe they have a very high deductible health insurance plan, or maybe they're totally uninsured. That keeps things accessible. But then the beauty about the model is that it also keeps things focused on the patient's health. So we don't have any larger healthcare system or insurance company 
um, kind of dictating how long our appointments can be based on billing, we really have designed our appointments times to reflect how much time we think we need to spend to take, take you know, great care of the patient. Um, the, the space is different. You know, if you guys can see here in my office and your listeners can think about it, we have an office where we have a, a exam space to examine our patients, but we also have a table where we sit and talk to our patients. That's where we spend most of our time. And then also, you know, I'm sitting at my personal work desk. This is also my personal office and our patients come to us in the room. We go out to the waiting room and get them ourselves. And um, we, we, we only have one room, you know, our attention is only on the patient in front of us. And if they need nursing or, or other care, then they go across the hall for that. Um, so we really, we, we try to keep it very patient-centered. No, that's great. And so you were mentioning earlier that you, that you do a lot, or your second job is with teaching process improvement. Um, how does this direct primary care model kind of allow you to do more process improvement or, or does it at all? What are some of the things that you're able to do under that model that you don't think you'd be able to do under the traditional model? Yeah, I, um, you know, so I just had a conversation this week with someone in the residency. We just got our second um, um, cooler of 100 doses of the Moderna vaccine and we were so excited. But of course, like many places around the country, the COVID vaccine, we are getting doses as a primary care office here in Ohio just when our area is running into vaccine surplus. There are so many vaccine doses out there that really, you know, we weren't sure we were gonna be able to get through them. So now we've developed a plan with the teaching residency to run a, you know, a vaccine clinic in the city. And we have the advantage of being an independent practice is that I don't have to run this through the pharmacy board of a hospital. I don't have to, um, you know, get an approval to distribute. My partner and I were saying, it feels so good that we can flex quickly, we can pivot as a practice and say, it's really in our best interest in our patient, our community's best interest to get these vaccines out. And so we're now gonna start running vaccine clinics on Fridays. And we were able to implement that within you know, 14 days and, and we're rolling. Um, and that's the kind of thing you just don't typically see in a larger healthcare system. The, the second thing is kind of more on a micro level. And I love talking about stuff like this, but like any small business owner or entrepreneur, you know, you get innovative because it's, it's our dollar on the line and it's our patient's healthcare dollars on the line. So for instance, the, um, the, in the JNC8 and the Joint National Commission, when they had comments on blood pressure a, um, a few years ago, one small point that was missed was that the auto, they, they recommended blood pressure be taken by an automatic cuff at home because patients doing self blood pressure monitoring, turns out the values were actually more accurate than a blood pressure taken by a nurse or physician here in the office. And you know, us physicians don't need to be insulted by our poor blood pressure taking skills because yes. the reality is we're not very good at it, even though we like to think we are. Even the patient wanted me to double check and, and check it. They're like, can, can you check my blood pressure? Right, right. they think you're gonna be better at it. <laughs> yeah, you're not. I don't think so. <laughs> I have no idea where my stethoscope is, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so what we did with that though is we did something cool and we set up a blood pressure self-monitoring station in our in our waiting room so when our patients come in and now they know the routine they sit at a chair and we chose the chair and yes we bought our furniture at bargains and buyouts you know but it's a nice chair don't worry and it has because it has an armrest that's right at heart level and there's a little clipboard and a blood pressure cuff sitting next to it and we chose the blood pressure cuff one of the ones that had been reviewed in the jnc8 and our patients come in and they know they're supposed to sit for one minute and check a blood pressure and then wait one minute and check it again. And they're supposed to check three blood pressures because that's where the data shows you get the most accurate blood pressures. And patients love watching that number 
come down because I'll tell you that third blood pressure is often at least 10 points, if not 15 points lower than their first blood pressure. And that's awesome. You know, that spares a patient a, a medicine yeah. and it, it does a couple other things. It, it makes them engaged with their numbers. So my patients come in and tell me their blood pressure rather than me forgetting to tell them and just throwing them on a medicine. And secondly, it, it saves us overhead. I don't have to have a medical assistant whose only job is to check vitals. My patients yeah. now have the routine down. Now that that sounds it, it, that model sounds really enticing to me. And one of the other things that I would imagine you're able to have a little bit more flexibility with how you document uh, the the visit. Um, you know, I'm guessing your notes aren't like the rest of our notes. You know, <laughs> 20 pages devoted to billing and and coding and quality requirements, and uh, you know, two sentences devoted to the actual patient care. So, so it's so interesting that you ask about that because something very different happened than what I thought when I switched to this care. I'm writing the notes and I here I am somebody who had dedicated a lot of her academic career, thus, you know, in the five years that I did that before coming over here to, to efficiency in, 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 in notes. And I thought I was going to spend so much less time writing notes and, um, you know, spend so much less time in the chart. But something interesting happened. Most of my documentation and note taking um, in a fee-for-service system was focused around checking boxes, right? My review of systems, my physical exam findings, elements of my HPI. Even if I didn't really think I was doing it, it was kind of in the background of my mind. But interestingly, when I started documenting, my, my partner and I decided that we now document for three reasons. So all physicians have to document a little bit for medical legal purposes, right? Like, God forbid something should happen. You need to like kind of back yourself up and that's a safety thing and we should all do that. The second is for communication with two people, my partner, let's say she's on call over the weekend and she needs to know what happened with my patient. And the second person is my future self because two weeks from now, I'm going to see this patient and I'm not going to remember what we said, right? I don't, you know, we just don't recall. Uh, even, God forbid, a year later, I'm really not going to remember. Mm -hmm. So there's there's the, the medical legal, there's a communication. But then this third thing happened that actually made me spend more time writing, which is for my own cognitive thought process and inquiry into the human condition and their medical problem. And, and I had completely that had been completely wiped aside in the way we document in fee-for-service medicine. So now mm -hmm. here I am writing out differentials that are like what I used to do as a medical student because I'm really thinking to myself, man, this back pain is interesting, but by writing a differential and crossing out and, and doing a complete physical exam, I just spared this lady an MRI because even I'm convinced based on her symptoms, I know she has a small impingement at L4, L5, but I know she doesn't have a myelopathy. And therefore, I know that I can treat this with physical therapy and we don't need to spend the whatever dollars on the MRI. And I was right, by the way, I later on got nervous and did get the MRI, but I was right. So, <laughs> but just, just an example, yeah. I really, you know, I went back to this kind of kind of more intellectual level documenting and, and I do, I spend less time documenting because I'm not really documenting for billing purposes, but I do have this kind of engagement in my clinical care that I just didn't experience in fee-for-service healthcare. But, but I, I'm not superhuman. That's not every note. Sometimes I just write, you know, follow up as needed. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. And, and Eleanor, I know that you, you talk a lot about physician burnout and resilience uh, among, among providers. And, and being somebody who's worked on both sides, worked, worked on the fee-for-service side, and now you have, have this different type practice, on a personal level, how has it 
affected your resilience, your your burnout or or, or lack thereof? Yeah, it, it's it's a good question. I can only assume that it's better, but sometimes that's hard to assess in a life, you know, because now now I'm a mom and I wasn't a mom before. So now I'm just a little bit more tired than I was before. Sure. And, um, and, and now, you know, it's a pandemic and it wasn't a pandemic before. So we're all just a little more tired because we carry that, you know, but, but I think I also forgot how, how burned out I was when I switched, you know, I really started experiencing burnout in my second year of residency. That's mm. pretty early in a physician's career to, to start thinking about, oh man, I don't know how long I'm going to last in this job. And I was really there at the three-year mark, which is part of what led me to want to try something different. And I'm, I'm not there now. You know, I, I know I'm. I think the the symptoms that I experience are fatigue, but not burnout. You know, you know, being a physician is hard. It's it's not like my job is not so different than any other doctor, but it's 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 much better. And and I think one of the reasons it's better because one of our friends, Skip knows Dr. Lou Flaspolar, says is that one of the pleasures of process improvement work is that if you do nothing else to make one tiny thing better every day, and sometimes it is just altering my lab order set so that that one order that was incorrect is now correct, or maybe just, um, you know, uh, you know, just one tiny thing per day. And that gives me a feeling of making my future life for my future self better. And that's a great burnout prevention tool for me personally. Sure. And it's, it's, it's so interesting that you mentioned that you you maybe started getting burned out during your second year residency, and I, I think that's probably a lot more common than we we all would like to admit. And because I think I think physician burnout is so so widespread among our profession that that we don't even realize it. We we think that's just the norm. We think this is you know that's the way we should be feeling. Yeah, I, I have this theory, actually, I'm going to write this up in a paper one day, which I just have not written yet, which is that we actually pretty um, purposefully teach burnout in medical school and residency. So when you go into medical school, you know, you're so excited to see your first patient, but then somewhere in your third year of medical school, your senior resident teaches you that the correct response when the emergency room calls with a new admit is to say, oh, God, it's the ER again. You know, and, and that response gets habitualized. And so what what just happened, the resident actually just taught you that burnout, a burnout driven response is the correct response when you find out you have a new patient, not, oh gosh, look what this guy has, that looks serious, we should go help. Or, oh, hey, that looks interesting. I've never seen a case of that. I'm excited to learn about that. We, we, yeah. we, we teach burnout very specifically. I would imagine that with your your practice, one of the other things that uh, has been shown to increase burnout is kind of loss of autonomy, loss of control. And I would imagine that your practice, you know, puts a lot more of that control back into your lap. You don't uh, necessarily have to, you know, give up that control to insurance companies or you know, administrators like us or anybody else. Um, you have a lot more um, control of your practice. And how do you think that affects? burnout. No, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that because that was one of the big things I wanted to come back to is that um, control of my schedule is one of my other greatest burnout prevention techniques. So especially as a new mom, if I can block my schedule at 430 to be sure to get the babysitter out at five o'clock, so I'm not tearing across the interstate at 457 or 505, knowing that I'm paying by the minute, you know, that 15 minutes takes a lot of the wind out of your sails of enjoying family time 
at the end of the day or blocking my schedule. Like today I, um, you know, saw a patient over lunchtime and I know that doesn't sound like something that would fight burnout, but it gave me great pleasure to be able to say to a patient who had an episode of concerning chest pain yesterday, you know what, just come on in tomorrow and let me take a look. And I could do that because I don't have a front desk staff person and an MA and a checkout person who has to also manage that patient encounter. I know that my nurse would be at lunch then, but I know how to answer the door. He's going to take his own blood pressure. He's going to see me and then he's going to wait for the nurse and get an EKG on his way out. Like it just, it keeps it so much simpler. I can respond to the needs of the patient. And I think a lot of literature has been written in the burnout circle about this other feature of burnout, which is the moral injury. The fact that we don't get to respond to our patients like humans, you know, we feel like we're machines in this system yeah. and being able to adjust my schedule on a whim is, makes me feel like a human being. And on your, on your website, kind of going along that, being able to respond to the whole patient, you know, y'all, part of your practice is integrated medicine. And so you get to do a lot of things, non-traditional you know, medical practice that is beneficial for the patient, but insurance normally wouldn't cover, I'm guessing. So how, how do you think that, you know, that integration with the model, how, how is that, uh, I don't know, kind of influenced your practice? And, and I, I think it would be enjoyable to do things that uh, I would like to do, but otherwise don't do because I don't, won't get paid for it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it probably helps more in the aspect of just feeling less um, driven to do things just by cost, but in actual practice, it's probably less of our practice than you might think. You know, most of the time, 99% of the time, we're primary care doctors, family medicine doctors with an open mind. And when you have time to understand, you know, today I probably just spent a half hour with a patient who has some chronic abdominal pain after a C-section and then hysterectomy and then a gallbladder surgery. And she's probably got some small adhesions throughout the abdomen. Um, um, I'm looking at our surgeon on the call to make sure he's like slightly agreeing with me. Like, yes. Okay, good. I'm on the right track. Yeah. And I think she has these slight adhesions. <laughs> and I think what she really needed to hear was that you're not going to rip something if you strengthen your core to recover from these surgeries. And, but I think, you know, she wanted to know like, what if it tears my stomach, you know, cause it hurts a little bit. It pulls a little bit when she tries to exercise. And so I think it seems very integrative because I talked to her about, well, maybe an acupuncturist could try to reduce the pain or, or, or maybe you should go do some yoga or Pilates to strengthen your core muscles. But I don't particularly think that was a very knowledgeably integrative medicine intervention. I think it was just having the time. And part of what I did was to look back through the surgeon's records from Texas, a different hospital to see, you know, actually because she had this in her mind that she had this like very complicated intra-abdominal procedure, but I'm like looking through the op notes and I'm like, no, it was just a routine surgery. You know, that tumor, oh, well, you had a fibroid in your uterus, but now you've had a hysterectomy, it's gone now. You know, I think she just needed somebody to explain to her that your belly is normal, nothing is unsafe and you can exercise to get better, you know, but, but that probably took a half hour, you know, because I had to, you know, I'm digging through 40 pages of op notes and I'm explaining, but that, you know, the physicians are nodding. That makes a big difference in a patient's life, you know? And, and not one mention of a referral to a surgeon. Right. I, 
I, I will admit, Dr. Mason, that I told her that the wrong answer when you really have that minor abdominal pain after surgery, the wrong answer is to go back and have another surgery. I, I'm, I'm totally, I'm, I'm totally kidding, and and I totally agree. And uh, you know, one thing that we say uh, is that when you operate for pain, you're going to get pain. Yeah. So, you, you like referrals for non-specific abdominal pain? Is not at all. I sure don't. You know, I like well, that. Can, can I just write down your name real quick? That's right. Um, you know, uh, Eleanor, it sounds like when you're talking about the processes in your office that, uh, you know, you have a lot of standardized processes. And I know that a few years ago you you spoke at, at our TWI summit that was held in, in Jonesboro. Um, I didn't, I didn't get to hear your talk, but I, I, I believe Skip said that you kind of talked about the relationship between maybe J.I. job instruction and physician burnout. And, you know, when we, especially me, us surgeons, a lot of us, when we talk about standardization, you know, we, we get really, really bristly. But but how how do you convince me uh, and, and people like me, I, I'm, I'm a lot, lot more convinced than I used to be, but how do you convince physicians that actually standardization is going to make your life better? It's going to make, make your life easier. It's going to free, give you more free time. It's going to give you more time to talk to your patients about the things that are, that are truly important. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, so so I'll, I'll tell you a funny story that I told at that conference, um, but I'll start with also just saying that I often compare it to um, something we do often as physicians, which is putting orders in. Remember the difference between if you're sitting there and it's a complicated moment, maybe it's pre-op or maybe it's internal medicine, maybe you're trying to order vaccines or you know something orders where it's just like takes a little bit of thought. And think about the difference of when you have a really well-made order set in front of you and you just have to click whether or not you want that thing versus having to think of from your mind, oh wait, what do I order again? This, did I order this? Did I order that? Oh, I, you know, I ordered the same thing on the other, that one patient, what was that patient's name? I could look up, you know, think about how much um, calmer you feel when you have a well-vetted, well-written order set in front of you and your decision is whether to include it or not, not trying to remember what to order. That to me is the benefit of standardization. I wanna keep our brain power for when it really matters the most. I want my brain to be on fire for my patients and I want my, you know, my mind and my spirit to be relaxed for my family. That, that Those are kind of my goals in life. And um, standardization actually allows me to keep that brain power for, for when it matters more. But um, the story I told at that conference is that when I first had to present a, a job instruction training sheet to um, to the faculty, I was a young faculty member. I had just graduated from residency. So, you know, it was my first year out. So this is my first time in a faculty meeting with the people who had been my teachers who are now my colleagues. And I was told to present this JI and the two people who were in my group to kind of lean over my shoulders and watch, both of them were kind of legends in the department. One of whom is a former Eagle Scout. He's in charge of all the procedures in our clinic. He's a standard, you know, he, he does everything his way, his, you know, it's his way or the highway. He's, he's most knowledgeable, but also the most per persistent and dogged about doing things his way. And the other one is also a legend and she's, um, she's a nun. And she is also pretty persistent about doing things her way. She used to run a women's hospital in Albania for 15 years. Um, she delivers babies, you know, she's just this amazing um, tour de force. And so I'm kind of nervously going through and I'm going, you know, like, 
okay, the first key point is da da da, you know, and I'm kind of like, oh, I don't think how, I don't know how this is going to go over. And at the end, I go through all three or six renditions. And at the end, I just hear um, silence. And from my right shoulder, from the, from the Boy Scout, I hear, huh, you know, actually, if we included this button, it might even go even a little bit faster. And I was like, yes, <laughs> he gets it, you know, because he said, huh, he saw that the platform of standard, the, what standardization provides is that platform for stability so that he could then even build on top of that. And then the nun said, huh, you know, the way I do it is this way, but I don't think that works as well. And I was like, yes. And then she also saw that the standardization provides a platform for building all of us up towards, towards, um, for better. So I, uh, I tell that story because e even to the toughest crowd, they were able to see something that allowed them to see the value in, 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 in JI towards process improvement. That's great. Yeah. You guys don't remember when we had paper, but we didn't have order sets, but you know, I, I had this, uh, mnemonic, uh, ABC Van Dissel. Y'all probably had never heard of that. And that's admit because condition, you know, we'd have to write all those out and, you know, it did help in, at 2 a.m. when you were finishing up a trauma surgery and you were writing their post-op orders. So, yeah, it, it definitely helps. I, I, I do remember I was a fourth year medical student when we switched to the electronic medical record. So my entire third year of medical school, I when I was rounding on my patients in the morning on paper, there was this part at the top that said vitals. And I didn't know that you were supposed to go to the nurse's station to see their last set of vitals. So I took a set of vitals on every patient <laughs> I saw for an entire month of surgery during its third year because I had yeah. I didn't know where to find them. Wow. We also switched our our fourth year of medical school, so it was it was interesting to go from the paper world to the EHR world. And my fourth year, all I had to do was be at the elbow support for all of my attendings that still didn't know how to use the EMR. Oh yeah, yeah. That's how I got into this job. I do. And I think I've seen kind of some, a little bit of the sadness of people in the switch to yeah. EMR because what used to be a really dynamic morning, you know, me and the yeah. medical students and the residents and the attendings were all kind of running around together and everybody's chasing binders, a chart for every patient. We, now we kind of feel a little bit like machines. We're just walking around with these carts, you know, staring at a screen and uh, it's a, uh, it's sad. Oh yeah. It's we amazing. have to, you know, when you were an intern, you would, you, you know, getting ready for, for big group rounds, you'd go up and you had, you'd have these racks and you'd, I'd pull all the charts and I would guard those things. You know, you know, nurses would come wanting to take or another consultant. And I said, uh, 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 physical <laughs> you know, therapist once again, there you're like, no, yeah, no, no, you can't have it. <laughs> well, one of the questions I have Eleanor is that, uh, I think you may be aware of some of this, uh, our friend, Dr. Lou Flaspolar and I and Chris and some others, we started an experiment several years ago where we've been using TWI, training within industry job instructions, specifically with residents. And, uh, and really have been getting a strong response and then the pandemic hit and we just started that effort up again. And the thing that uh, was encouraging to me and surprising to me recently, uh, about two or three weeks ago, we were uh, had a handful of residents going through and we were kind of directed uh, very strongly to uh, use TWI job instructions on an epic job, you know, and what the residents made it very clear to us made it opened up our eyes was this is fine and great, but you really should be looking at the procedures because 
from resident to resident to resident to resident on certain procedures, there's so much variation that goes on. And they were saying, listen, it would be so good if we all did this particular procedure in this way, which is what TWI job instructions helps do, right? It helps create a standard behavior. Have you seen in your practice opportunities uh, to do something similar? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, um, I'm sure Dr. Mason can comment on this, that the way procedural training is described in medical school and residency is uh, see one, do one, teach one. Yeah, that's it. And um, that still kind of exists today. I, I had some opportunity to do that a little bit in my practice. So um, I just standardized even just um, list of supplies so that now my nurse can prepare, you know, for a punch biopsy, she knows what to get out. Um, versus an IUD placement or something like that. Um, so I've done a little bit of that, but we definitely have room for improvement. Um, and we we also do that. So so we also we did standardize how we do point of care labs because we found out that there was a lot of variation, um, even in you know doing a urine dipstick for a urinalysis. You're actually supposed to draw the urine off for a culture before you do the dip because you can contaminate it and. I had never seen anyone doing that. So, but by but by standardizing that as a best practice, now it's just standardized. Our nurse pulls off a culture before she does a urine dip, and then you know um, discards it if she doesn't need it. And um, so, so yes, we have done some of that. We we have also though had success in teaching the focusing on the EMR with our residents. Um, we. I think what what our approach was, what we agreed on our approach would be was to do the lowest hanging fruit first. The EMR was a place where everyone felt burnout, everybody wanted help and everybody wanted to spend less time doing it. Um, but there were certain elements of medical practice that we know would be harder to convince people to standardize like doing a procedure. So we 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 have not been brave enough to tackle that yet. Oh yeah, the, the C1, do one, teach one in residency though, it was, see one the way I do it, do mm -hmm. one the way I do it, and teach one the way I do it. And it was just so, you know, one attending wanted you to put your fingers in the rings of the needle holder. So whenever you operated with him, you had to remember, okay, Dr. Adkins likes this. Another attending wanted you to palm the needle holder. One attending wanted you to do a two-handed knot. The other wanted you to do a one-handed. It was just, it was just crazy. And you, you had to, you know, depending on, and you would get, if you did it one way, that may have been okay. You'd, you'd get chastised. Yeah, but uh, is there an answer though, Doctor Mason? Like, is there could like is has there been a study? Like, do you have better control over a needle holder if you've got your fingers in or you're palming it? Like, is there such a thing as a objective data on that? If if there is, I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe yeah. we can, Jake. Maybe you and I can we can formulate some study and and do that because yeah, I don't think you want me holding any needles. <laughs> well. As I as I bring us to a close, just a quick comment on that. We did a uh, some TWI job instructions several years ago with Patrick Gropp on doffing of the Ebola equipment. And what was so incredibly insightful about that was if you followed the CDC guidelines, you would make a mistake. In other words, it was it, it was organized in such a way that you were going to create contamination. So we had to have an expert in the room, a physician, and we had to, it was really all about the key points within the important steps so that we didn't create that cross-contamination. 
And uh, so we're, we're still learning a lot about that. But on all that note, Eleanor, I just want to tell you, Dr. Glass, just thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your passion. Uh, you were one of the very first people when we were putting this podcast together. I said, yeah, we got to get her on. She is very passionate. We've got, I said, she's got some great comments. And so you spoke at our uh, Baptist TWI summit in the past, and we're just so incredibly thankful for you. Uh, Dr. Flaspoler, when we talk, he probably brings up your name at least uh, every other conversation. And so we're just so thankful. Thank you for being on the podcast. And on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you all for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I, I look forward to hearing more. And, and nice to meet you, Dr. Mason and Lancaster. Good to meet Thank you, you. Uh, Enjoy it.